Good morning, Trinity. My name is Eric Tonis, and I am happy to be here with you. I love this church. I haven't been here a lot, but I have learned to love this church quickly. I'm glad to be here. There are a lot of connections. One of my colleagues, J.P. Moreland, was one of the founders of this church, along with some other people associated with Biola, where I teach. I'm also a pastor of Grace Evangelical Free Church in La Mirada, so we have a lot of good connections here. I love Todd. We've been able to work together quite a bit. When you add up all the weeks, we've worked together at Forest Home, and I love and trust that man. He's good. He's a good man. And Bill Bourne, I know the, the Bourne family, his extended family, they usually sit over here, I think. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there you go. Oh, yeah, I got it all figured out. Um, you know, I was thinking about this series, and simply getting here this morning at 735, which is when I was supposed to be here. There's another one of my colleagues, Scott, over there. This is great. But um, I, I was thinking, I needed to get her at 735. I brought my be two beautiful daughters with me. They're my brilliant, delightful daughters, Caroline and Paige. Wave, girls. Yes. Love them so much. And uh, Paige came to me last night, like she always does, because she's a planner. And she said, Dad, what time do we need to leave in the morning? And I said, I don't know. I haven't even looked at what time I'm supposed to be there. And I haven't even... Uh, figured out how long it's going to take. So I did those things. I figured out where I was going, how long it was going to take to get there, and then that caused a chain reaction of when I needed to get up, when I needed to get ready, when I needed to get to bed, when I, when I needed to be, have some other things done. And before you know it, those details of what tomorrow held were starting to affect my present, right? And this actually started months ago when Todd emailed and asked me to to preach this morning and told me about the series and then that affected my thinking and my reading and my preparation and what I love about this series is the goal because it's the goal the Bible itself has for thinking about the future and not just tomorrow not just next year but eternity what happens when you die that's as big a question as you'll ever seek an answer for and so it's really important we do that. And it's been interesting in my lifetime. I think a shift has taken place. My grandparents' generation, you might say they were a bit obsessed with end times stuff. I mean, my, my grandmother had a, a full-blown model of the heavenly city that she had built and <laughs> taught out. I'm serious. It was just a, a good friend of mine who's my age, he had a belt buckle that said, perhaps today with a big trumpet that Jesus could come back today, right? <laughs> People used to think and talk about the second coming and heaven and hell, and it was a common theme, but I really think a pendulum has just swung, and it's almost like you never hear it anymore. Last thing you want to do is be so heavenly-minded, you're no earthly good, right? As if that's a problem, right? I've never met anybody who I think is too much thinking about heaven in a Christian sense. I don't think that's possible because our goal is to live in light of what's to come. You know, you remember what John Lennon said in his famous song, Imagine? Ah, yes, many people uh, look to John Lennon as the, the ultimate source of wisdom. But uh, you remember in his, his, his song, Imagine, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. Actually, it isn't. Human beings have never been able to get away from thinking about the afterlife. It's not easy at all. It's actually impossible. So he's wrong on that account. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. Eh. No hell below us. 
above us only sky. Is that hopeful to you? Is that a source of hope? I think that sounds on one level, oh, wouldn't that be nice? It would just simplify life. No religious wars, no theological debates, no divisions among people, just unity. If we could just incorporate the John Lennon philosophy of life, everything would be fine. Imagine all the people living for today, living just for today. Is that comforting to you? No, that's terrifying. Living just for today, it actually seems like that maybe is one of our biggest problems, just living for today in such a short-sighted way that doesn't have the ultimate destination of life and the ultimate goals of life clearly in view in a way that invades my current life. So the way I spend my money and my leisure time and everything, all my decisions, the way I view my relationships, the way I view time itself is now affected by where this is all going and how it's all going to end. And the only way you can know that is if God made everything and God is making everything heading toward a destination and then your life is seen in light of that. The Bible says it is appointed a man once to die and then to face the judgment. It's not this never-ending circle of life, right? It's not. That song is so nice, but it's not comforting at all. If you listen to it from The Lion King, you know, the circle of life. What happens to me when I die? You know what the message of that song is? You become fertilizer. <laughs> it really is. And you enable the next animal to come along and eat the grass that you enable to grow. I don't find that comforting at all. That's deeply troubling to me. I want to be more than fertilizer when all is said and done. And where am I going to get that hope? Deep down, I have this desperate need to know my life will continue on. And not just because at my funeral, they'll say his life continues on in our hearts. I want more than that. Because people are forgetful, and most of us can't remember the names of our great-grandparents and our own kids sometimes. And so it's really important that we have a life framed by what really matters. I just asked him, when I got to Biola, Clyde Cook was the president. He was the longest tenured president in the country of any uni university. He was over there 40 years. I just asked some students, uh, he, he stopped being president, I guess, 12 years ago, died not long after that. I asked some of my students, any of you know who Clyde Cook is? One raised his hand and said, isn't he the guy the building's named after? Yeah, that's about all you get after a while, yeah? And none of us are going to get buildings, maybe. So uh, what is life all about? Where is it heading? Do you want answers to that? I do. I do. I don't know if there's anything I want an answer to more than an answer to death, than an idea of what's to come and therefore how I should live now. That's why I love the point of this, because the, the point of end time preaching, the point of heaven and hell ideas in the Bible are to profoundly motivate us for right now in the way we do everything. And so I, I'm thrilled to be part of this series, very grateful to do it. And what I wanna do for my contribution is to make sure we realize that everything, everything, including the doctrines of heaven, hell, judgment, redemption, it's all just an extension of who God is. 
It's all because of who God is. We tend to isolate different teachings of the Bible. So you even have people say, you know, I'm a Christian and I believe the Bible teaches that a thing called hell exists and people go there who don't repent and turn to Christ, but I don't like it and I wish it weren't there. And if I were God, I wouldn't have it, but we're kind of stuck with it. So I guess let's just make the best of it, but just not talk about it too much. Well, when you realize that the doctrine of hell is an extension of God's character, the reason hell exists and the reason heaven exists is because of who God is. You don't want to say, we'll just put up with it. You may have to do that with a friend who has qualities you don't quite like and wish would change, but you don't get to do that with God, you know? Now, if I were to design God, it wouldn't have these five attributes and certainly not something like hell. But I don't get to do that, so I'm kind of stuck with him as he is. No, we don't want to put up with anything about God. We don't want to tolerate anything about God. We want to love everything about God, everything, including what it is in him that leads to a teaching like hell, like eternal conscious punishment. That's what the Bible teaches is the, is the destiny of those who never turn from sin and trust Jesus. And, and that's a hard teaching, and you don't hear it very much. And actually, the most numerically and financially successful churches in the country never talk about sin or hell. And they'll tell you, no, it's just not what we do. They do have $10.5 million homes because it's successful. It works. in the People don't want to hear about their sin. They don't want to hear about the serious consequences that sin brings. And we don't even use words that the Bible uses like sin and transgression and rebellion and we're enemies of God to describe sin anymore. More and more, it's we're broken. You know, we're dysfunctional. We're messed up. We've made mistakes. Youthful indiscretions. All these words that are actually true, but they're symptoms. Am I broken? Yeah. Is that my biggest problem? No. Now, I want you to pity me in my brokenness. But I don't want you to reduce my problems to my brokenness, because if all I am is broken, all I deserve is pity. No wonder we don't have a category for something like punishment, like judgment, like the doctrine of hell. If we turn the, our biggest problem into all the effects that sin has on me, psychologically, emotionally, then it's just going to take more time, better education, better parenting, a better political system. The next presidential election will solve the problems. <laughs> right? So uh, really, where's your hope? In the greatest problems. If you don't define the problem right, you won't get the right solution. Or at least you'll get a solution that's very different than the true one, even if it uses some of the right words. And so I want to think this morning, near the beginning of this series, about things like heaven and hell, about the afterlife in light of who God is. Because if we don't do that, there'll be separate ideas, there'll be separate teachings that we feel like might not be that important, but we, if we see these things as the result of who God is, then we need to love these doctrines like the church has throughout its history, realizing the importance of these things. 
So the first thing I want to talk about is the character of God in a holistic way, which means all God is has no division. The Bible says that God, James, is, is not uh, shifting shadows. He doesn't change. The Bible says that hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, is echad. The, the same word used to describe the oneness of man and woman in marriage, although di distinct, they come together. And so God in him, I think to say he's one, echad, means that there's no other God, but it also means that there's no contradiction in him. There's no division in him. Everything that's true of God is always perfectly true of God and always perfectly working together. And so that means God is not just holy, and he's not just loving, and he's not just compassionate or gracious, and he's not just uh, right wrathful in his opposition to sin and evil. It, it means he's everything he is all the time, perfectly influencing all of the characteristics that he is. I'm writing a book right now called 21 Things Christians Should Probably Stop Saying. A plea for biblical precision. Now, go ahead, get mad at me. I, I'm going to get, people are going to get really mad at me. And these are, you can go ahead and say them if you want. But I just want people thinking about the way we talk. And I'll give you one of the chapters. One of the chapters is half of you are going to be really mad at me. But that's okay. That's all right. I'm a guest. Um... <laughs> Um, one of my chapters is, I think we should probably, I got the probably in there to not be overly dogmatic about this. I think we should probably stop saying, this is my favorite verse. Oh, I know. Throw things at me if you want. I think we should say what I think we usually mean by that, which is, God has powerfully used this verse in my life. Or God has significantly changed me through this passage or this book. Great. He does that. Let's talk that way. But when we say, this is my fave, <laughs> it just makes it sound like verses are competing to be our favorites. Like ice cream flavors or politicians. No, it's all God's word. I have a real place in my heart for verses of the Bible that never get asked to the prom. They, 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 they never show up, right, on the baby's Bible, uh, at the dedication. They, they, uh, they, they um, yeah, who puts something from Leviticus, right? Or, or, but it's all God's word, right? It's all his word. So if we have favorite verses or books or portions of the Bible, you know what we're going to end up doing? Have favorite characteristics of God. And that's a really bad idea. Because here's the thing. If you just isolate some of God's attributes at the expense of others, you'll not only get God very wrong, you won't get one of the attributes right. Think about it. Aren't you glad God is all he is and not just some of who he is? Let's just, but I like the love of God. I like the mercy of God. I like the compassion of God. So do I. But what does that actually mean? Everybody knows the Bible says, God is love. But how many people know before John says that in 1 John 4, he says, God is, anybody know what he says in, in chapter 1? God is light. 
And in him, there's no darkness at all. Why do so many more people know the Bible says God is love and so many less know it says God is light? God is light, which means pure, holy, truthful. Now, aren't you glad his love is those things? Imagine if God were love and not pure and truthful and holy. <gasps> Would that even be love? No. Aren't you glad God's attributes aren't like petals of a flower where you pluck one off and say, ah, yes, the love of God. Ah, yes, the wisdom of God. Ah, yes, the power of God. Ah, yes, the presence of God. That'd be terrifying, actually. Could you imagine a God who were powerful, who was powerful and not loving? That'd be horrible. That'd be like a lot of human leaders in history. Imagine if God were loving and not powerful. Oh, that's not very helpful. Imagine if God were loving and not wise. Oh, that's really bad. That's the way I love a lot. I have four precious children. Two of them are here. And I, I know, if you ask them, they'd say, yeah, my dad loves me. And he really wants to love me well. But you know what else they would tell you? He doesn't always do it very well. And it's not because of lack of desire or trying. He's just not very wise sometimes. And he makes me even more angry instead of helping me. Uh, because, you know, fathers do not exasperate your children to anger. Busted. I, and, and a lot of time, it's not because I want them exasperated or anger. It's just, I, oh, I didn't know that was going to happen. That didn't work. How many times have you said that, right? And different kids need different stuff, right? Very different stuff, right? And so I need wisdom. Love without wisdom is a terrible, weak thing. How about if God were loving and wise and lacked the power? Or how about lack the presence? Well, I have the love, the wisdom, and the power, but I'll get to you next week because I got other things I got to do. He's always present. How wonderful is that? So the more we think about God's attributes perfectly interdependently working, the more glorious he becomes. And then we have our minds exploding when we think of things like this. Right now, in this very moment, God is present fully everywhere. That means right now he is present fully with every baby being born and every baby being aborted and every marriage, and every divorce, and every murder, and every act of kindness. He's right now fully present with every theft and act of generosity. In the moment, perfectly responding exactly how he should. <laughs> right, exactly. I have a hard time being fully present and responding the right way in one place at one time. And that's who God is. And that's an awesome God we're talking about. And isn't it good to know that that God has this attribute that never excludes love but is called wrath. It's called a vehement opposition to all sin and evil. Would you open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1? I want you to hear as good a description as you'll ever hear of God's wrath. God's wrath, not a word you hear a lot these days in, in the contemporary culture, but his wrath is a precious quality that I want us all to learn to not just put up with, 
but love about him. I want you to say, I love the wrath of God. I love that God is wrathful. Romans chapter 1. L- listen to this description of God's wrath, his righteous anger, his righteous vehement opposition to all sin and evil. You ready? Verse 18 of Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They have it, but they ignore it. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And here's the description of the central human problem. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. That is the human problem. Now, this leads to brokenness. It leads to dysfunction. It leads to alienation and sadness and a difficulty in loving and being loved and all the problems we battle. But if we don't deal with the fundamental problem of opposition to God, worshiping the creature rather than the creator, which is the very heart of the human problem, If I reduce the human problem to the ways it affects me as a pitiable creature and doesn't leave a category for the righteous judgment of God where I'm without excuse in front of him, I'm going to miss the gospel. And then Jesus and the cross and the good news will become something very different than what it is. And so we've got to realize that this is glorious of God. God hates sin and evil. Don't you love that about him? Do you want a God who doesn't hate sin and evil wherever it shows up? I mean, when you hear about someone walking into a synagogue, just killing people. You know, a man was just executed in Texas for dragging a black man to death behind his truck. Whatever you think about capital punishment, don't you say there's got to be justice. There's got to be justice in this world. You know, people think, I can't live in a world where God's wrathful. I couldn't live in a world where he isn't, where he doesn't bring justice. Can you live in a world where there's no justice? I couldn't live one day. And you know, in the Bible, the problem is not a God who hates sin and evil. A much bigger dilemma for godly people in the Bible is why in the world he's waiting so long to bring judgment. It's amazing that our problem is, man, what's God's deal? What's he so upset about? (gasps) Take an honest look in your own heart. Take an honest look at the news for 90 seconds and tell me God doesn't have a lot to be upset with, to be angry about. There's worship of the creature everywhere, and it shows up in horrifically destructive ways. Is anybody going to fix it? You know, people say, if you believe in a God like this, you'll be a violent, vengeful people. 
my friends, just the opposite's the truth. You know what the Bible says? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will make everything right, trust me. You don't need to be vengeful yourself. You don't need to make things right yourself because I will one day. And throughout the Bible, people are saying, how much longer, Lord? How much longer before you bring your righteous judgment on this world? It needs it. It needs it. And if we're honest, we'll say, and I deserve it too. We'll admit that. And now we're ready to understand the love of God in its full biblical truth, in a whole Bible, whole character of God sort of way. Not picking and choosing in cafeteria, biblical study, and understanding of God's character. And so, if, if you would just look at this glimpse of Jesus we find here. And in 2 Thessalonians, would you go there quickly? And I just want you to see this picture of Jesus. I want to make sure you have this idea of Jesus in your mind. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Look in 2 Thessalonians 1. It's amazing to me the way most people think and talk about Jesus. You would think that he's just a super nice guy. Just this really, just great guy you'd just love to hang out with. And, and there's some truth to that. But I wonder how many people have a picture of this, like Jesus, in their understanding. Look at 2 Thessalonians 1.5. Uh, 1, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. That you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God which you are also, for which you are also suffering. That's very important. I'll get back to that. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. Here, listen. Listen to this. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you is believed. Do you have that picture of Jesus in your Jesus portfolio? Or is it highly selective how you view Jesus? Listen to how people talk about Jesus. It so seldom includes a Jesus who comes as a judge. Oh, he came the first time as a suffering servant, the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, to lay down his life for his sheep. But when he comes again, he's coming with a sword. He's coming as a judge. And in Revelation, the last glimpse we get of Jesus in the Bible, he returns as a judge. And do you know, people are crying out, pleading for rocks to fall on them so they don't have to face the wrath of the Lamb. We have got to have this whole Bible perspective of Jesus or we will never get to true freedom. I love the song we sang right before the sermon. I'm a child of God. I'm chosen. He's for me, not against me. 
I am who you say I am. And that's the vital line in the whole thing. I'm not who I think I am. I'm not who the culture thinks I am. I'm not who a mean coach said I was when I was in junior high and I've never been able to shed that identity. I'm not what my abusive parents think I was. I'm not what Hollywood thinks I am or don't amount up to. I'm who you say I am. And then there's another vital line in that song we were singing. And I want to make sure we pay attention. And don't just claim those truths. You know what it says? Whom the sun sets free is free indeed. What does that mean? Those who aren't set free in the sun aren't free. They're not forgiven. He is against you. He's not for you because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. God is against the sinner. He's opposed to those who are opposed to him and worshiping the creature rather than the creator. That's the truth of human sin and of God's response to it. We've got to have this clear in our minds or we'll never get to the true gospel because Jesus is a judge. He's not just a savior. Don't you want him to be this way? Don't you love this about him? He's a God of wrath. Richard Niebuhr said years ago in the 60s, we are, these days, preaching more and more a God without wrath, bringing men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. And we still can call it the gospel in our culture. I love that this is a gospel-preaching church, and the gospel is preached in a way that's holistic and biblical, and this series is evidence of a desire to do that right, but we need to see sin for what it is and see God's response to it for what it is, or else we will never get to the true gospel, because God is not just the God of wrath, he's also a God of love. And you know, there are a, a small percentage of the church who camp on things like wrath, and they're just as wrong as those who camp on things that exclude everything else but love. But the solution to these, these imbalances is not more imbalance. It's to get God as right as we possibly can. And out of his righteous wrath, that's not the end of the story. God loves us. Just in Romans, go to chapter 5 and you'll see what I mean. Romans chapter 5 puts it this way. Listen. It's a glorious description of who God is and what he's done for us. Verse 6 of Romans 5. Listen to this. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Did you hear that? Not once we proved ourselves worthy of his love. Not once we earned anything or demonstrated anything or made ourselves worthy or built ourselves up in our accomplishments or our morality or our religious practice. No, while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God, while we were still in our unrighteous state, he sent his son to die for us. That's how loving he is. He doesn't love us because we loved him. It's just the opposite. We love him because he first loved us. When we were dead in our sin, when we were dead in our transgressions, when we were nothing but children of wrath, nothing coming our way but judgment. And God in his great mercy, not because he didn't care anymore about justice, but what? 
he poured out that justice on his son. He took the initiative and poured out all that wrath on the son, all that justice on Jesus. He took the righteous punishment for our sin. You see, if you don't have a category for the wrath of God and the doctrine of hell, you won't have a category for the gospel itself. Because what's happening on that cross? What's happening? The Son of God is displaying the love of God to us. And the Son of God is displaying the wrath of God to us. He's displaying the justice of God to us. The righteousness of God to us, not just the mercy. Actually, patience and mercy and grace without justice makes absolutely no sense. You know, sometimes people say to me, you know what, I'm a really patient person. I'm super chill, super tolerant. And then I'll watch their life and I'll say, you know what, I don't think you're patient at all. I just think you don't care. There's a really big difference. The more you care about justice and things being right, the more patience is required. If you just don't care, well, that's not patience. That's apathy. God's anything but apathetic. And out of his love and his justice and his holiness, it's not just love that sent Jesus to the cross and sent the Father to send his Son. It's all of who he is. And that's a glorious truth because on the cross, God satisfied his perfect justice and his perfect wrath. And that means heaven is a category and hell is a category because the character of God itself demands that righteousness be satisfied and love be expressed. And that happens perfectly on the cross where love and justice meet more than they did anywhere else in all of human history. And that's the good news of the gospel, that God hates sin and evil as much as he possibly can, and he perfectly judged it on the cross. So we don't have to take that judgment. We don't have to take that wrath for ourselves. He did it for us. That's the great and glorious news. And so this needs to invade our daily lives. Christians should all have jaw problems. We should all have TMJ, because we should all walk around every day like this. Can you believe I'm not going to hell? Can you believe I'm a child of God? Can you believe I'm chosen? Can you believe I'm forgiven? Oh, not presuming upon it, not assuming it, not thinking, well, of course, it's God's, God, God's job description. You say people, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and they'll say, well, and, well he should. I'm pretty lovable. <laughs> and because we've got all this self-esteem teaching that, that's so clouds our thinking. It doesn't even enable us to see our problem for what it is, but God tells us the truth. He's not a soul doctor who's guilty of malpractice. He tells us the truth, and so we come to him and say, Lord, I need the solution from you, because if you really see your sin and his wrath for what it is, you would never run anywhere but to him, and to run to him means you run to the foot of the cross, and so heaven is for those who have been set free in the sun. Heaven is for those who have relationship with God in the way he provides it. And that's through satisfying his justice perfectly on the cross. He's done that in his amazing grace. He's done that for us. And that's the truth of the gospel. And we can walk around every day marveling that I'm really forgiven. You know, I talk to people sometimes and they say, I have nothing to be grateful for. And they're a Christian. And 
I say, well, let's start with you're not going to hell. <laughs> and if you run out of things to be grateful for after that, well, we need a talk, right? Because, look, it, the rest is gravy, right? Why can we have such a hard time with gratitude? Because we feel entitled to easy lives and nice lives. Why does the Bible preach the judgment of God? as a source of comfort. It does. The Thessalonians, did you hear it? They're being preached to about the second coming of Jesus so they will be comforted. Why? Because they all knew people who had been murdered for their faith in Jesus. Could you imagine what kind of church this would be if a month ago Todd was dragged out of here during a service and killed. Imagine how that would affect your life. I, I got to teach at a seminary in, in India. And in the last 10 years, they've had eight graduates martyred. You think that changes the dynamic a little bit? Yeah, it sure does. Because when you see life in those lenses, oh, you want a just God. And you're more grateful than ever that he's poured out his justice on his son, even though you deserved it. But as we think of heaven and hell, it needs to invade our daily lives. But as we think of heaven and hell in our daily lives and in heaven, what do we think of most? And I'll tell you, I love being a Christian at weddings and funerals. I do. I watch people. I'm a people watcher. I watch people. And I watch people who aren't Christians fumble around for the right words because they don't have them. And I hear the worst theology ever at funerals. Oh, I know my brother sent me that rainbow. What? I know my, my sister, God must have needed an angel. And I, I don't do that there. I'll do it here. But, but really, and, and, and I have compassion because they're grow because you know what? They don't think about this stuff ahead of time. But that's what we do, right? Why do we come to church? To die well. We do. I love being middle-aged. I do. My impending death is less and less avoidable in my mind. It is. I'm dying right now in front of you. I am. That's why I have gray hair and a bad back. I'm dying. That's why. And that's good. It's forced on me. I, I can't avoid it less and less, right? And so it's good to think about our That's why we come. We come to die well so we can live well. That's why we're here. And why do you want to go to heaven? Oh, I want to go to heaven for about 1,010 reasons. I do. Listen to John Piper along these lines, though. Listen to what he says. The crucial question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict and no natural disasters, here's the question. If you had all those things, could you be satisfied if Christ were not there? Oh, I, 
I think so often, what do I long for most? My dear friend Chris Mitchell, who just died a few years ago when he was 63, he, the last sermon he preached at our church, he said, oh, uh, for a long time, I just wanted to get to heaven so I'd be safe. And he said, more and more, I long for heaven because I know then everyone will be safe from me. <laughs> he said, in heaven, I'll never hurt anyone again. And that's a wonderful thought, isn't it? When I think of how much I've hurt people in my life, I'm so grateful it'll never happen again. But even that isn't the greatest thing about heaven. It's God himself. Oh, it'll be glorious to be gathered among the saints. Reconciliation among human beings at every level. No more cancer. No more divorce. No more heartache. No more loneliness. No more racism. But the greatest thing by far is we will see the face of Jesus and hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we long for. That's what heaven is all about. Lord, help us. We are an easily distracted, discouraged, disillusioned, disappointed people. So would you help us to be filled with joy and, and, and hope and patience and holiness and gratitude and a deeper fear of you, a more heartfelt worship of you, a life that lives for what lasts forever and not just for the here and now. Lord, help us to take to heart what your word teaches us, all of what it teaches us, and all it teaches us about who you are so that we live lives that really do make a difference and last into eternity. Lord, I pray for Todd and the other leaders and Bill and, and, and those who are uh, steering this beautiful ship of Trinity. And I pray that this series would have the impact that it should, that the Spirit is more than able to bring about as these dear ones of yours yield themselves to what your word teaches us. Lord, help this church to continue to thrive and grow and make a difference in a very dark and needy world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.